if you've got your Bibles, open to John chapter 10. And we'll start in verse 22. And so last time we were looking at the first 21 verses and the context was a blind man being healed and Jesus talking about being the good shepherd because the blind man was cast out of the temple. He was excommunicated. So he was kicked out of the old fold and Jesus telling him and comforting him by saying, hey, look, there's a new fold. There's a new group of people you can hang out with. And it's the same for us too. Basically, when we become a Christian, there's a change. Often there's a change of who we are friends with, sometimes where we work, and uh, there's a, a change in, in what we, the people we associate with. So that's what this man found out, and Jesus was there when he was rejected by his own people. Jesus was there to accept him and uh, take him in. So this time we're just going to jump into verse 22, and it's a good, you know, three months later or so. And this is at the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, or Feast of Lights. And I'll explain what that is later. So for now, um, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll read the, the rest of the chapter. Father, thank you for the awesome truth that we find in here about your deity, Lord, about who you are, about our eternal assurance, our salvation. Lord, our eternal life is secure. We are secure in you and the confidence that we get from, from reading these verses. Lord, you are the, the good shepherd and Lord, you don't lose any of your sheep. And we just thank you for who you are and for everything that you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm personally just, as we're going through this, just starting to understand more and more about the whole shepherd sheep thing and that I'm just a dumb sheep and I need to submit to my shepherd because he knows the best for me and I don't know the best for myself and that's a difficult thing sometimes to remember. So, verse 22 in John chapter 10. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, 
you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand, and he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. So let's start at verse 22. The Feast of Dedication. It's winter. As far as I know, the Feast of Dedication is on December 25th. And it celebrates or remembers the overthrow of the awful Syrian general, the evil guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, who is used as an example of the, or type of the Antichrist, by Judas Maccabee and his band of brave guerrillas in about 164 BC. So. The Feast Hanukkah, or Feast of Lights, is, celebrates the cleansing and rededication of the temple after three years of desecration by this guy Antiochus Epiphanes, king of Syria. And they still celebrate this to this day. So around Christmas time they'll celebrate um, the Feast of Lights, or Hanukkah. And so what this guy did was he sacrificed a pig, and he stopped the daily sacrifices. And, um, and there's a, a big story behind that, if you want to look into it. And verse 23, And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him. So, there was um, a guy in Canada, I forget his name, this is just this week, and he was preaching the gospel on a street corner, and is in an area where there's lots of homosexuals, and, and these people just literally boxed him in. They cornered him, and he tried to walk away, but he couldn't because they were physically hemming him in. So I imagine that's the, the situation here, surrounding him. They, the meaning of the Greek is they boxed him in. So they're trying to bully him. They're trying to intimidate him. And they said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, if you've been following along, he already has. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So, the works Jesus did were evidence that he was from God and that he was true to his word. For example, some of the the prophetic word that we have about Jesus is found in Luke Luke 4, 16-22. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the intendant and sat down. 
and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. This is wonderful. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So they all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? So, oh, wow. No, no, it can't be true. <laughs> so the scriptures told beforehand what Jesus would do when he came. And all those things that we just read, Jesus was doing, had done, and they all bore witness to, to him. They all said, yes, this is true. So you'd think that they'd start to understand that he is the Messiah. The next phrase in that bit we just read was, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, previously in chapter 8, Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, and therefore you cannot understand, you cannot believe. So this is the same kind of spiritual parentage theme from there. Their lack of belief demonstrates the fact that they are not the sheep of Jesus because they do not recognize his voice or his truth. They are deceived. They are of their father, the devil. Uh, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Okay, I want you to picture something. Go back to when you were young, and Mum and Dad were there, and you're crossing the road, and mum's on one side, and dad's on the other, and they're holding your hand as you cross the road. Can you picture that? When you're a little kid, and mum and dad are on either side of you holding your hand. That's the kind of picture I get here of the father, uh, we're in the father's hands, and then Jesus' hands, and we're safe. They're leading us, not just one hand, but two. We are safe, eternally secure, because we are secure in the Eternal One. And uh, a quote from Chuck Smith, he says, uh, called, His sheep are safe. The sheep know the voice of their shepherd. There can be many different flocks all mixed together in the fold or at the watering trough. But when each shepherd gets up and calls to his sheep, the sheep know their shepherd's voice and they follow. The sheep feel secure when they are with their shepherd. And we, as children of God, are secure in Jesus, our good shepherd. We are safe in the hand of the Father, and no one is able to snatch us out of his hand. But how do I know if I am really one of his sheep? How do I know if I am secure? Are you listening to his voice and following him? If yes, then you are one of his sheep. Simple as that. So I wanted to spend a bit of time just talking about this verse, this idea of being in God's hands, because there's a fair bit in the Bible that talks about the hands of God. So we're just going to go through some attributes and just to give us a bit of confidence about how he treats us, his thoughts towards us, and, and uh, his, how capable he is of looking after us. So the first one is God's hands are strong hands. So 
Matthew twenty one twelve. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. So, he's a carpenter. There's no power tools. He does all the work himself. I imagine him to be muscly. He's strong. And then you go to Matthew fourteen thirty one, where Peter is sinking. Now, the church fathers referred to Peter as the giant. So you've got this big guy sinking into the water, and Jesus reaches out and lifts him up. Just like, like a one-arm curl, and pulls him up. And with waterlogged clothing, it would be pretty hard, right? So Jesus, Jesus is strong enough to hold us in any situation. That's a picture there. Uh, God's hands are tender hands. If you go to Matthew nineteen fourteen and 15, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. So Jesus loves children, and we are his children. We think we're old and mature, but in God's sight, we are just his kids. So he's gentle and kind toward us, and we just need to enjoy our time with him. The next one, Mark chapter 6, verse 2, it says, So God's hands are wonder-working hands. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? And such mighty works are performed by his hands. So, what mighty works are performed by his hands? Through Jesus, Jesus working in us, Jesus you know, multiplied a few loaves of bread to feed 5,000 people. He touched the skin of the lepers and made them whole. And just think about that. Jesus touched the leper. Back then, the Old Testament regulations said there had to be a distance of about 100 meters between the lepers and the general population. So Jesus could have said, be healed. But he didn't. He went over and he touched this guy. And that's the the compassion that Jesus has. And we might feel dirty and sinful, but Jesus comes and he touches us. And God's hands are inclusive hands. Matthew 12, 49. And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. So to Jesus, we are his family. So if we think about that, we are... not just adopted, but we are literally the family of God. He thinks of us as his close family, his mother and his brothers. God's hand is a hand that spans the cosmos. And Isaiah 40 verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span? (laughs) All right, the universe mm, is about half a hand span. With the naked eye, man can see 1,029 stars, about, you know, depending where you're standing, on a clear night. Uh, with his first telescope, Galileo could see 3,336 stars. Now we know that there are more than 100 billion stars just in our galaxy. And there's about 100 billion galaxies in the universe, each having about 100 billion stars. So there's 100 billion times 100 billion stars. All right? Now, 
what we're going to do this morning is just try to name, remember the names of all those stars. No, just kidding. But guess what Isaiah 40, 26 says? The Lord knows each of them by name. That's 100 billion times 100 billion. And here's another little thing to keep things in perspective, how big God is. The earth is spinning at 1,600 kilometers per hour on its axis. At the same time, it's traveling at, around the sun at 108,000 kilometers per hour. And while that's happening, the sun is moving across the Milky Way with the solar system at 103,000 kilometers per hour. And the galaxy as a whole is moving across the universe at 777,000 kilometers per hour, roughly. Okay? So, added together, we can have a maximum speed of up to 2,173,000 kilometers per hour, depending on which direction we're going in. And we're one of the slowest moving galaxies in the, the universe. We're only lumbering or moving slowly along at 777,000 kilometers per hour. Some galaxies, most galaxies, are moving along at 16,000 kilometers per second. Per second, yeah. So what keeps it all together? What stops everything from colliding and just messing up? Well, Isaiah 26. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Isn't that fantastic? So that's the kind of God that is holding us. Now, God's hand is the hand that holds the worm. And you're wondering, what is that about? Isaiah 41, 13 to 15. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sled with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. So the same hand that holds the cosmos is the one who holds us. And the challenges that we have, the things that we think are too hard, God is going to come along and take us, even if I feel like a worm, like helpless and weak, God is going to take us and any challenge that might come our way, God will strengthen us and enable us to be like a a threshing sledge to go straight through and defeat those challenges. So that's just another example. Now, you might be as stupid as a sheep or feel as low as a worm. That's okay because it doesn't change the fact that we are eternally secure in the Father's hand. Our feelings don't affect the fact, okay? Now, some people say, okay, well, once saved, always saved. That's really, really good. I just do what I want. I live the way I want. Do whatever I want. So, can we lose our salvation? Well, I would say this. Worms can't and sheep can't because they're the ones who God helps. They're the ones who are saved. But some people are compared to dogs. Like Second Peter 2.22, a dog returns to its own vomit. And this is speaking of those who relish returning to their own sin time and time again. There's no repentance. So Peter says they were never sheep, not even worms. They are dogs who love to eat their own vomit. Pigs who long to return to the pig pen. So if you think about the prodigal son, he was in the pig pen with the pigs. The pigs belonged there, but he didn't. And he knew that. And so he wanted to get out. So true believers can sometimes end up in the pig pen, but they don't want to stay there. They want to get out. 
about the pigs, you can clean them up, you can do whatever you can to help them and, and nurture them and push them along the road, but guess what? They'll just want to get straight back in the pig pen and they probably weren't saved in the first place. So you can identify as a pig or as a prodigal. The prodigal is saved. We're all going to fall sometimes, but we just get back up and return to the Father and he welcomes us with open arms. But the pigs, the unsaved, they just want to go back to their sin. Here's another beautiful one. God's hand is the hand that bears our name. Isaiah 49, 16, it says, See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And in John 20, 27, Jesus said to Thomas, Behold my hands. And you could say that in those hands, love was engraved. Because when he was on the cross, he was thinking about us. So when the enemy tells you you're not saved or that you've blown it once too often, don't let the enemy say that your salvation is in jeopardy. Don't let him produce in you a feeling of insecurity. Instead, marvel and be thankful at what Jesus said when he declared, you are in the Father's hand and you're in my hands. No one can snatch us out of his hands. Remember that condemnation that we feel sometimes? So just remember that's from the enemy. Quote from Chuck Smith, If we've got a desire to follow the Lord and we're in a relationship with him, then we are one of his sheep. Now, last week and this week, Jesus is making some truth claims. He's saying, I am the door. Okay, I am is the deity statement, but the door. There is only one door. I am the good shepherd. Not a good shepherd, not a door, but the door. And that means that he's making an exclusive truth claim that the only way to heaven is through him. That means everyone else is wrong. So when you share the gospel in today's pluralistic society, people say often something like this, I'm okay, you're okay, so I don't need to hear what you have to say. You heard that before? Basically, it's based on the false logic or false reasoning that all religions are the same and they will all get you to heaven. you just got to be good enough. And so many won't accept it when you say that Jesus is the only way. So I'm just going to give you a way to get around that. In logic, there's ways of arguing truth. So one of those simple logical arguments is the law of non-contradiction. So I can say I'm either standing up or I'm sitting down or I'm lying down. I can be one of those three postures. But I can't be doing more than one at a time because that would be contradictory. I can't be lying down and standing up at the same time. Only one of them can be true at one time. Now, if a painting had one painter, one artist, either Bill Smith alone drew the picture or Mary Jones alone drew the picture, but not both. One of them could have, or it could have been someone else, but not both of them. There can only be one artist for the painting. So you know that if two people both claim to be the author of the painting, then one of them is lying. One of them is wrong. So how does this apply to religions, the world's religions? Well, all religions of the world make absolute truth claims regarding the way to salvation. We'll start with Christianity, briefly. Christians proclaim that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a free gift. That there had to be a payment or atonement for our sins and that God came to earth in a human body 
to be that payment when Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. It says that no one is perfect and therefore no one is good enough to get to heaven on their own merit or good works. It's only through Jesus. Hindus claim that salvation, or liberation for them, is achieved when a person transcends this world of illusion by building up enough positive karma or good works to escape the cycle of reincarnation. Muslims state the possibility of salvation, no guarantees. They state that the possibility of salvation results from submitting one's life to Allah and faithfully carrying out the five pillars of Islam. Buddhists say that salvation, or nirvana, is the result of detaching oneself from the desires of the physical material world. So, each one of the world's religions, the main religions, claims to promote path to salvation. But each of those religions provides a distinct and contrary path to all the others. So, either any one of those religions can be true, or none of them are, but it's impossible that two can be true, or they all can be true at the same time. Does that make sense? So, only one can be true at one time. So, once you explain this to people, then they say, oh, okay, well, that means only one of them is true. They're more ready to listen to your defense of the gospel. Then you can start defending the gospel because they actually think, okay, well, Maybe yours is a true one. I better check it out. Let's go to verse 30. I and my father are one. So in verse 24, the Jews said to Jesus, If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus gives his answer here. I and my father are one. Now what is Jesus saying when he says, I and the father are one? Well, I'm going to take you to two other verses where it says basically the same thing. The first one is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. And the same verse from the Amplified Bible. He is the sole expression of the glory of God, the light being the outraying or radiance of the divine. And he is the perfect imprint and very image of God's nature. So that's the amplified version bringing that out. So what does it mean? The express image of his person. It's The idea is of an exact likeness as made by a stamp. You used to put a seal on wax or clay. So if something was yours, you'd stamp it with your seal. And Jesus is the same as God. Okay, So he is God. He exactly represents God. And the next one is found in Colossians. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, amplified. Now he is the exact likeness of the unseen God, the visible representation of the invisible. So he is the image of the invisible God, and the word translated image is the Greek word icon, E-I-K-O-N, and it expresses two ideas. So it's likeness, like the image of a coin, or your reflection in a mirror. You look in the mirror and the person you're looking at should be the same person as standing in front of the mirror, right? You'd hope. So, And it means a manifestation with the sense that God is fully revealed in Jesus. Now, there's another word that Paul could have used here if he wanted to say that Jesus was similar to the Father, but not exactly the same. And it's homonon, H-O-M-O. 
O-I-O-M-A. I can't say it. And that speaks of merely similar appearance, but he uses a different word. And Robinson says Jesus is the very stamp of God the Father. That's how Robinson, um, that Greek scholar, explains this word. And when it says that God is invisible, it doesn't just mean we can't see him with our eyes, but it means that he is unknowable. So it's only through Christ that God is revealed. Christ came down to reveal himself, to reveal God to us. Now, I and my Father are one. So this is a really strong statement regarding the deity of Jesus and the nature of the Godhead. And it refutes some false doctrines. So just quickly, some people believe that Jesus only doctrine. And some people believe that Jesus is not God. But here it says, two people, I and my Father are one. So there's Jesus and there's a Father and they are one. So here we have evidence for the Trinity. Here's a little quote from Ray Comfort. He says, concerning, was Jesus God in human form? Some may ask how Jesus could be both God and man. It has been well said that when God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, became a man, he didn't cease to be God. He created a body and then filled that body as a hand fills a glove. That's a good way of kind of imagining or thinking about the incarnation. If you put a glove on, your hand is in the glove. The hand still exists. It's just now in something. So you can't see it, but it's still there. And just to cap off this quick talk about the deity of Christ, we just want to go through some of the words or some of the titles, some of the attributes that are ascribed both to the Father and to Jesus. And when I read these out, you'll realize, well, there's a lot of titles, attributes, and names which are used both for the Father and for Jesus. So, for example, Yahweh, or I am. God, Elohim. Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Lord, or Adonai. Savior. King. Judge. Light, Rock, Redeemer, Our Righteousness, Husband, Shepherd, Creator, Giver of Life, Forgiver of Sin, Lord Our Healer, Omnipresent, Omniscient, Omnipotent, Eternal, Preexistent, Immutable, Receiver of Worship, Hope, Speaker with Divine Authority, Raise Jesus from the Dead, and receives glory. So the Father and the Son both are called that or are attributed with those attributes. So that's another very strong evidence that Jesus is God in the flesh. Verse 31. Here's more evidence. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. <laughs> Jesus has time and time again told them who he is. He is the Messiah. He is God. Okay? And many times, as we've read, they've tried to stone him. They've tried to kill him because of blasphemy. Okay, And here again, they want to do it. Now, he's told them so many times, so why did they want him to tell them again? Well, they're not really interested in the answer. They're just interested in another opportunity to try and kill him. That's it. You know, They wanted to 
have an argument. They wanted to have a fight. And we can talk to people like that sometimes, and they're not interested in communicating with us. They'll actually just want to pick on us. So it's, that's kind of casting a pearl before swine. And in verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father, for which of these works do you stone me? <laughs> the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. So the Jews understood very clearly what Jesus was saying. They understood the language, they understood the meaning of the words, and they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. So they understood his claim to deity, but the fact they were unable to throw the rocks at him showed they experienced a proof of his deity. All right, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. That's confusing, eh? If you read that and you and you don't know the context of it. Well, the context is a quote from Psalm 82 verse 6. And Jesus is referring to the Old Testament where the judges were called gods because, it's with gods with a small g, because they had the power of life and death in their hands. And Jesus also has the power of life and death in his hand. And so he's saying, why are you so upset when I say that I'm the son of God? You know, When you say I'm God, don't I have life, the power of life and death in my hands too? So just to um, clarify, Jesus is not making the statement, you are gods, and, and applying it to all humanity, <laughs> like the New Age people do. It's a metaphor. It's only used for the judges who did have the power of life and death because they could sentence people according to uh, what the judgment was. Verse 37, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing first, and there he stayed. And when he came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. So there's a lot in this last little couple of verses, five verses. I'm going to go to the bit about John first. John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. What's most important that God uses us in to do miracles, to heal people, to you know raise the dead, to do miraculous stuff, or our testimony? Is what we say about Jesus true? Okay, now who is the greatest prophet of all? John the Baptist. And he did how many miracles? None. Okay. The greatest prophet of all did no miracles. And so that tells us that the, the highest priority in ministry is doing exactly what John did, talking about Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, and exalting Jesus. And that's what made him great. And that's what make, can make us great in the kingdom of God too. And there's another uh, phrase in there, and many believed in him there. 
Now, this gives me a lot of hope because despite the influence of the Pharisees who were blind with pride and there were bad shepherds, many people still came to Jesus. They still came to faith in God. God's work goes on despite the opposition of man, despite false teaching, despite all the, the negative stuff that's out there. Because, you know, sometimes I worry, oh, you know, how are people going to get saved in that church or, or whatever? But you know what? I don't have to worry about that. God's in control. And even today, and, you know, talking to people, I see believers growing in their faith, even though they are in a church which is not teaching the truth. And what it tells us is that the growth of the believer is a work of the Spirit. So you can have good teaching, but if you're not yielded to the Spirit, it's not going to help you. And you can have poor teaching, but if you yield to the Spirit, the Spirit will use what's good and help you to grow. Of course, it's better if you're in a church that does teach the truth. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. So he's gone back to the place where John was baptizing first, where at the beginning of his ministry, then many came to him. They resorted, as King James says, or they moved toward Jesus. So we're about three and a half months away from the crucifixion. There's not much time left. The Jews are like boiling with rage at Jesus. They're so jealous, so uh, incensed at him. He's got three and a half months before he's got to go back there. And so he goes out and he goes to this place in the desert, in the in the bush called, um, was it Bethabara? And John declares in verse 22 that it's winter. And it, it's not just the season, but it kind of gives you the, the feel, the atmosphere of what it's like in Jerusalem. It's just cold. It's, it's dark. And so what do you do? If you're in that situation, well, leave. If we're really busy, if we are feeling like it's winter in our lives, if we're feeling like suffocated by all our busyness and all the things that are surrounding us, get out into the wilderness and spend time with Jesus. He was not running away from people. He wasn't going there because he was scared. But he was being prepared for the battle that he knew lay ahead. If you knew you were going to be crucified for the sins of the world, you'd need to get ready for that. You need to prepare spiritually for that. So he's out there to spend time in the presence of the Father. And he spends three and a half months there at Bethabara, seeking the Lord, seeking his Father, and preparing for the cross. And while he was there, people went to him, and they found refreshment and rest. So for us, when we, as I said before, when we get busy, when we are finding ourselves squashed in and it's like we're starting to feel a bit distant from the Lord, get out of there. Get out and spend time with the Lord. And this whole thing about Jesus being the shepherd and Jesus is also the lamb. And I just want to spend a bit of time talking about Jesus as the lamb. So... God left heaven and became a man. But he didn't stop there. He went lower still. He became a lamb. What does that mean for us? Well, when you go to the temple, back in the Old Testament days, you take a lamb with you. 
And if you wanted to worship the Lord and, and have your prayers accepted, then you would have to present a sacrifice. Who did they check? What did they examine? You or the lamb? The lamb. If the lamb was clean and free from blemish, then you could go in and worship. It had nothing to do with you. It all depended on the lamb. And so when we feel discouraged, when we feel like, oh, I've messed up, you know, how can God accept me now? And we go to our Bethabara um, out in the wilderness and we, we come back to the Lord. Remember that God is not examining us. He's examining the Lamb, Jesus. We come into God's presence not based on our works, our perfection or imperfection, our failures or our successes, but simply because Jesus is the Lamb of God and He is worthy. Remember what Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in Him. And Judah said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And not only did Jesus become a lamb, but he became a worm. So Psalm 22, verse 6. The Hebrew word for worm, tolaath, is translated in the Old Testament as scarlet or as worm. And they use this as a dye to color the garments as red, scarlet. and this is an interesting worm. When it bears its young, the female tolaath would climb a tree and fasten herself to a branch, and in the process of giving birth, she would explode, leaving a spot of blood on the tree. So to give birth to her young, she would have to die and leave and shed her blood. Jesus is our tolaath. He went on the cross. He climbed the tree, so to speak, and then he died so that we could have new life. And on the cross was his blood. He left behind his blood. And Isaiah, he uses his word, tolaath. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, or tolaath, they shall be white as snow. And a little analogy here, just to finish off. Imagine that, you know, God, there's this little planet in the corner of the universe somewhere. And the Father shows you this little planet. And you look down, and it's full of dogs. And you think, oh, it's nice. There's a planet full of dogs. And God says, oh, have a closer look. And you have a closer look. You get a bit closer. Oh, yuck. They're all rabbit dogs. They're all drooling with saliva. They're all, you know, biting and, and eating each other. And you say, oh, this is sick. Those dogs are all rabid. Destroy them, Lord. You know, this this is terrible. They're so... Disgusting, they're killing themselves. Just get rid of them. God answers, no, I love them. I want to tell them I have a plan to heal them, but they don't listen to me because I'm too big for them to relate to. That's why I brought you here today. I want you to go down there and tell them I have an antidote for their rabid sickness. <laughs> and you go, oh, I don't know about that. But wait, there's more, says the Lord. <clears throat> if they're going to listen to you, you must become like them, a dog. So let me get this straight, I say, or you say. You want me to become a dog and tell them you have a plan for them, an antidote to heal them? Yes, says the Lord, but there's something else. They're not going to listen to your message. On the contrary, they'll turn upon you, rip you to shreds, and kill you. I'll resurrect you with great honor and glory, but from that point on, you will be a dog forever. So if God asked me that, I'm going, oh, I don't know about the God. That's a lot to ask.
But the distance from Jesus being God and coming down and becoming a man is a lot greater than me becoming a dog. So Jesus, the sacrifice he made was a lot more. And so forever, in his humility, he's a man. He's got a body as a man. He's got a glorified body, the same that we'll get when we get to heaven. And because of that, he can relate to us. He knows our hurts. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our pain. And he intercedes for us. And we are free to enter the presence of the Father and receive blessing today only because of the worthiness of the Lamb and the sufficiency of his blood. So go to Bethabara, spend time with the Lord, and enjoy his presence. Just remember he's your shepherd, and uh, he wants you to enjoy a relationship with him. So Father, I thank you, Lord, for that you are God, Jesus, you are God, and yet you became a lamb to die for us, to take our place. And Lord, you're also the door. You are the only way into heaven, the only way to receive eternal life. And you are also the good shepherd. Lord, you are the one who takes care of us. You're the one who holds us, who who comforts us, who leads us. And we just want to thank you that our salvation is secure. Our eternal assurance is there. We are with you forever. No one can snatch us out of your hand. And so help us to understand the greatness, the majesty, the the magnitude of what you've done in becoming a human, Lord, and coming to this world of sin like rabid dogs and becoming one of us and then being beaten and bruised and killed by us because he wouldn't accept you. But you did it for love. And thank you that you've made the way for us to be with you. So we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.